Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And uh, we keep going over this, and it's okay. Uh, Forgive me if you feel like it's repetitive. But um, the word that Paul is hammering home is justified. Justified. Um, Justification, this idea that God has taken sinful people like me and you and taken the unrighteous, me and you, and made us righteous at the cost of his son uh, as we would trust in him. And I want to say this, that you, if you have not trusted in Christ, you are not justified. And if you are not justified, you are not saved uh, from eternal separation from God. And maybe the most basic way to say it is you are not right with God. You're not right with God. And that idea of being right with God, um, I realize that life's complicated, right? There's many uh, people in the world and uh, sometimes we have family members and maybe coworkers and not everyone likes us and not everything's uh, complete and okay, But this idea, are you right with God? Are you right with him? When you think about the one who made you, are your sins forgiven? Are you justified with him? Um, That's really what matters most. Um, So if you're not justified, you're not saved, you're not right with God. If you are right with God, if you have uh, been justified, if God has done the work on your behalf, Uh, though the world has not changed, you have, you have. I I realize that I I want you to get this picture and I want you to know this well, is that the world's not going to change. The world's not going to get any better. Um, And yet God is going to change you in the midst of this world. Uh, If you're justified, if you're right with him, you're in the midst of a sinful world that hates God but you are right with him. Uh, You have been changed. um, And as it says in chapter eight, uh, we looked at this last week, he has made you to be more than conquerors, more than conquerors. What a beautiful way to say and for us to remember that we are not just barely winners. We are more than conquerors because of what Jesus Christ has done. And he ends up chapter 8 with telling us that we are never to be separated. We are never to be separated from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As we have accepted Christ, as he is now our Lord, because of him, we are are forever connected, not to be separated uh, from the love that God has for us for eternity. And it's in that confidence that we move into chapter 9. If you'd stand in honor of God's word, I'd like to read to you the first five verses of Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. God's word says this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears uh, me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I uh, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. 
They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, uh, the worship, the promises. To them belong the, the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. God, we ask your blessing on your word now. We ask that you would help us to understand it. We ask that you would mark our hearts and change our hearts and prepare us uh, for, to think bigger things than we are even able to comprehend. God, do your work in us now. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, we only have two points. It's a little frustrating. I was trying to stretch it into three, as a good pastor should, but we only have two. Um, Forgive me. I'll try to have four next week, okay? I want to warn you, too, uh, that not this week, but the next couple of weeks are going to be hard stuff. It's going to be hard stuff, hard stuff to plow through. And I just want to encourage you to come. Uh, Some of you know why they're hard. Uh, Some of you don't. Either way, just to come and to hear from God. Um, What we want to do here is this, that we want to take out our own thoughts and uh, not just set them aside. Most of the time, throw them away, (laughs) throw them away and hear from God, hear from God. And uh, this particular passage is kind of preparation uh, for what we're going to end up with in the next couple of weeks. And so I just want to encourage you to come to hear from God. Um, we, we first see in chapter 9, uh, chapter 9, this first section, Paul's broken heart. Paul's broken heart. And uh, you think about what breaks a man's heart. What are the things that bother a man? Uh, you know if you are a man or maybe you're married to a man or you think of your own father, you, you can tell what he cares about by what gets him frustrated or angry or even discouraged. Um, uh, and that's kind of telling. And unfortunately, it tells more than most of the time we want to be told, right? Um, but you know what breaks a man's heart. And Paul reveals in this short section here what breaks his heart. And I I want you to hear it loud and clear. I want you to understand how Paul describes uh, his broken heart. Verse 9 says this. He says, I'm speaking uh, the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. And what I would say about this, uh, this first verse here is that he is setting up. And I think sometimes it's hard for us when we're going to say something big to just say it. And, and he stops them and he says, you know, I want you to know I'm being truthful with you. I, I want you to know that this is not something that I'm just saying. These aren't empty words that I'm writing down for you. These are words from God. These are words from God as he has worked in me. It's the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. And his conscience, the, the, his, uh, the idea that the Holy Spirit is working in him, bearing witness of what he is about to say. I would say it this way. God verified truthfulness. I know that in our world today, and uh, it was true in Paul's world because it's connected to the human heart, but even worse today, 
uh, empty words, right? Big empty words are said all the time, uh, especially when it comes to uh, communicating our love for one another. He says, I'm not lying. Uh, I, the conscience bears witness and the Holy Spirit, God's at work in this. This is the truth of Christ. Verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. You get this, that there's this intense cloud over Paul's life as he thinks about this one thing. And he's using these huge words. And, and some would say, well, is he depressed? Is he uh, struggling? Yes. Uh, th- this is a huge burden for him. And, and we're going to hear what that is. But I, I want you to know that these words are intense pain. Intense pain. This, whatever this is, it's causing him intense pain. Intense emotional pain. And this is what he says, verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. When Paul uh, considered his fellow Israelites, the Jews that uh, he was a part of, probably his own family, and probably as you think about who Paul was prior to saving faith is he was a persecutor of the church and a well-known uh, a well-known and prominent uh, persecutor of the church a Jew and and as he went about he must have known many people he was not someone who was uh, unknown but connected and so he identifies these people as his brothers his kinsmen according to the flesh meaning that they were part of his family. They were connected as part of the the race that he came from and the people that he was connected to generationally. And so as he thinks about these people, he looks at them and he says, uh, I could wish that I myself were accursed. Wish to be accursed. Uh, That word accursed is the idea of taking on the curses of God. Taking on the curses of God. And in the book of Romans, uh, he goes over and over and over again that all are sinners, that all have a sin debt to be paid, and that all these sins, because of our unrighteousness, they will be, they will be, uh, there will be punishment for them. And Paul looks at the sins of his kinsmen his brothers and who they are and he says I wish that I myself would be able to take their place to be accursed and and he goes on to describe he says and cut off from Christ it's a hard picture there it's a picture that maybe even is um, connected to the final the the final verses of chapter 8 uh, where he says no one can be separated from, uh, separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and he looks maybe connecting to that and he says this, I would uh, wish that I myself would be the one to be accursed, to take on the curses of sin that uh, are deserving from God to me, from God to others, that I would take them and to be cut off from Christ. For the sake of my brothers. 
What a powerful, powerful um, love that Paul had for his people. Um, it, it seems overwhelming. It seems uh, even maybe that he's speaking in hyperbole. It's, it's so intense, and yet that's why I think he said in uh, verse 1, verse 1, I'm not lying. I'm not lying. This is true. This is uh, verified God truth in me. That this is truly, this is truly how I think of the plight or the situation of my brothers, my kinsmen in the flesh. And, and I want to say this. This is Paul's love for lost people. Lost people. Uh, I'll, I'll admit to you that... Um, I, I'm familiar with this passage, not just because of my study this week, but I've known about this passage for a long time. I've read over it many times. I've heard it referred to in many sermons. And and yet as I look at this, I go, man, that is Paul's love for lost people. And to be honest, I don't know that I've ever said that and meant it. I, I don't know that I have. But what I want you to get here is just an example of Paul and his true and important understanding of both the gospel and the repercussions of rejecting the gospel, okay? How lost are lost people? Um, As you think about people that you may know, even politicians, even, you know, maybe people in our community, maybe people that you don't know very well, uh, you just see them. And, and when you think of them and when you see them and you know they're lost people, what, is, what triggers in your mind? What, what does that do to your heart? For Paul, and I realized that he was connected to these Jews, Israelites, however you want to refer to them. And he, he, he saw them and he said, man, I, I, I wish I could take their place. I, I wish I could be the one that would take their place, that they might know the Savior. I, I say it this way, and I just want to leave it with you, that this is the love for lost people. This is what it looks like. I want to say this. That's what love is. That's what love is. What what Paul describes in these words is love. Is love. God's way. Love God's way. I I think about uh, us as parents, those of you who are parents, and, and your love for your children. And... If I'd ask you a question, would you give up your life for your child? I hope you would say yes. I hope you would love them that much. But the the problem with giving up your life for your child, do you you know what the problem is? You don't have it afterwards. You don't have it afterwards. You know, what what Paul is saying here is something that, that he would stand in the place uh, of the punishment that would be for his brothers, his kinsmen, according to the flesh, that, that he would say, I'll stand in their place, I will take their punishment, but that would put Paul in a place where he would forever, in eternity, 
be paying for the sins of another. This is what it is. I I, want to tell you that this is the love of God, or maybe more accurate to say the love of Christ, the love of Christ even spoken of in chapter 8. I want to show you a couple of verses written by John, John 15, 13. And and I I, I want you to hear this, um, and, and I want you to know that this is God for you. This should be parents, this should be you for your kids. Spouses, this should be you for your husband or wife. And young people here, as you think about the future, this is what love is. This is what love is. As you think about getting married, this is what love is. As you think about how great it would be to have kids, this is what love is. John 15, verse 13. John 15, verse 13. God's word says this. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Lay down his life. Um, 1 John 3.16, John says it in a a similar way. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The picture here is this, the laying down of one's life. And and I, I want you to get this first, that this is God's love for you. Why is it so powerful that he loved you? Why is it so powerful when you know that God uh, articulates, I love you, and then how do you know what is the proof that he sent his son and he laid down his life? He laid down his life, he died for you. And so as, as you wonder, what is it to love? That's what it is to love. And what did Paul do? He loved his lost people, his brothers, his kinsmen, his family, his, his, his nation, really. This, this picture is, he says, I wish that I could be the one to be in their place. Um, I, I point this out because I think it's important to see the powerful... Po- now, um, There are things in life that aren't that important, right? Um, you shouldn't die to get a pizza for your uh, husband or wife. Shouldn't do it. You shouldn't do it. It doesn't matter how good the pizza is, right? You know, um, there are things that aren't worth it. But Paul chose to, to talk about the one thing, their soul, their soul apart from Jesus, and, and, and that, that one thing was so important that he said, I wish that I could take their place in such a way that I would be the one to take the punishment. Now, I want to talk about marriage uh, and having kids here for a minute. Um, I, I, can't, I, I can't pass this opportunity to talk about this. This is what love is. Uh, if you think that your marriage is all about you getting what you want, it's not. 
It's not. That the relationship is connected to Christ's love for his church and the church's response to that love. And it's this kind of love, laying down your life for one another. And it's not contingent one upon the other, right? If my husband lays down his life for me, I'll lay down my life for him. But the minute he doesn't, bets, all bets are off, right? Uh, you know, you, you didn't do this, so I'm not going to do this. And, and this picture here is this is death, right? Death. And you say, well, I, I haven't had to die. Uh, I want to don't use this in a, a derogatory way, but your marriage will be, all be about killing you, right? It's going to be about killing you. And you say, what do you mean by that? It's that you are going to have to lay down your life in small ways and big ways, your whole marriage. It's this idea, well, I don't want to do this. Lay down your life. If that's what it takes, lay down your life. And, and why are you laying down your life? Because you love the other. You love the other. As you have kids, as you have kids and grandkids, there's going to be plenty of things uh, that you, you didn't sign up for. You didn't sign up for. And it's going to come fast and furious the minute you have that little one. Right? And it's going to be a shocker. I, I always do this. Not anymore. <laughs> Not anymore. Uh, this is the way I like it. Your baby doesn't care. Your, husband, baby, your baby doesn't care about what you like. And y- your, your teenagers don't care either. <laughs> right? Right? No offense to any teenagers here. Uh, um, you, you get this picture. that, like, And so what is that? It's laying down your life. If you wonder, uh, if you're ready to get married, I, I would just say, are you ready to lay down your life? Are you ready to give up what you want? Uh, am I ready to have kids? Probably not. You're super selfish. You're super selfish. And, and what's going to happen is that your selfishness and the baby's needs and wants are going to go like this, right? And I just want to tell you, lay down your life. Lay down your life. If you love them, lay down your life. This is how Paul saw the importance of the gospel. In the lives of his kinsmen, he said, I wish that I could lay down my life. As you look at this passage and you connect it to chapter 8, you realize Paul's saying it's in frustration he says this. I can't do this. I can't be separated from Christ. It's, it's not a possibility. I, he, he already wrote that down. He said, but I wish that I could, not because I want to be away from Christ, but because I know the importance of the gospel. Which leads me to a second applicational point that I just want to say this. What's important? What's important? Uh, you could say the gospel. Yeah, the gospel is important. We, we've sung of that. But more importantly... And more specifically is this, that a sinner be justified before God. That a sinner be right before God. I I, want to point back to you parents and grandparents again. There's a ton of things that you you probably find important in your home, what's going on. But really, this one thing is important. 
that your son or daughter is justified, right with God. And if they're right with God, you know, then, then that will impact and go out to other ways. But if they're not right with God, who cares about the other stuff? Who cares how many degrees they have? Who cares how successful they are? Who, who cares if they, you know, have, uh, you know, great personality and this and that? I, I just want to tell you that should be the single thing. And this was the thing that Paul uh, for him, it broke his heart in such a way that he said, I would be willing. I, I wish that I could be the one to stand in their place. And, and, and what is that? Who stood in your place? Who stood in Paul's place? Jesus stood in it. You know, what a blessing that, that is. And what an incredible gift of love that God has given us, that he gave us his son and that he stood in our place. As you look at uh, verses 4 and 5, he goes into detail. He goes into detail of why the, the rejection of the Israelites is so bad. And it's really the rejection of riches. The rejection of riches. Verse 4 says this. They are Israelites, and, and, and this is a list right here of things. They are Israelites, and to them belong adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, okay? This is a list of the riches that the Israelites had, the Jews had, that other people did not. He, he first identifies them as Israelites, People of Israel, which points back to God making them a special nation. And I want to tell you that as we look at the book of Romans and other places in the New Testament, we realize that Israel has some special promises for them as a nation. And if you want to ask me, you can say, well, who is Israel? Is Israel Israel today? And I go, yeah, kind of. Is it all those people? Not really, you know, uh, who is truly a Jew? I'm not sure, you know. Um, it, it gets fuzzy over the generations and the years, but know this, that God knows who his people are, okay? And even as we look at the next few verses, you're going to see uh, the, this idea that, that not all who call themselves God's people are God's people. But he says something specific to the people of Israel, the Israelites, and as you look at the Old Testament, you realize that the, the Old Testament is focused on these special people, this special nation that he chose for himself. He says uh, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption. It's interesting that he uses this word adoption because for the most part, Paul uses that word. He used it in the book of Romans already that he refers to someone becoming a child of God as adoption. And why is that more special than just a natural birth? Well, it's because there's, a, you know, a, as you have a natural birth, miracle, amazing thing. But uh, you don't, if you're in the hospital, you know, in the old days, it would go to the nursery. The baby would, you know, you'd have the baby and it would go to the nursery. And maybe there's nine, 10, 11 babies in the nursery. And then, and then after, you know, as the lady recovers after a week and a half in the old days, you know, now it's like half hour, you know, uh, they're like, get out of here. Um, but, uh, 
As you, as you leave the hospital, the, the, the woman would go and she would retrieve her baby from the nursery. But I, I know this, that you, you don't get to choose whichever one you want when you go to the nursery, right? You don't say, yeah, the one I had was kind of deformed, had weird, you know, it's kind of, I don't know, too long, too short, you know, whatever. Uh, put that one aside. I'm going to choose another. Um, you don't get that. It's the one that you have. You didn't get to choose. But adoption has this picture uh, of knowing all the problems, of knowing the situation and saying, I want you. I want you. And the picture of the New Testament, as we look at this word adoption, is that in faith, as God does a work in us, he chooses us for adoption. He says, I want to take you uh, from not being part of my family to being part of my family. It's a beautiful picture of salvation. And he uses that for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. He says, God chose you. God chose you to take you in and, and to make you my special nation. There's other passages that talk about this, but it was all on the goodness of God looking upon the nation of Israel. It's not that they were better. In fact, in many ways, they were lesser. And he chose to make them great. He chose to make them great. Even in the next word, he says, uh, belong the adoption, the glory, the glory. And and what we see in... uh, the nation of Israel, God's people, as they were adopted, now they, they represent or they have God in their midst, in their presence, in a special way that was not like the other nations. The other nations did not have this kind of relationship with God. And as they looked, up, the other nations would look upon this nation of Israel, they would see their God and the glory of God was in them, in them. And so there was a special uh, ness, if you can say that. Uh, as, as people would look upon that nation, they would know them to be different. God's glory was upon them. He goes from the glory uh, to talk about uh, the covenants, the covenants. And as you look through the Old Testament, you will see uh, his promises, his special promises that God entered into them with these covenants. And, and the special thing about the covenants is this, that, that God entered in with them. He said, I promise to you, I will make this special promise to you. Not dependent on you, but dependent on me. Uh, this, they, they knew God's goodness through the covenants. And it goes on very similar to the covenants. He says, and the giving of the law, the giving of the law. You remember when Moses received the law and uh, that which came after as well. It's the idea that God spoke to them. And he said, I want to reveal to you what's right and wrong. I want you to know. I want to give this to you that you might know me. It was special that they received the law. He says, uh, the glory, the covenants, uh, the, the giving of the law, and now the worship, the worship. We're not sure here because other translations insert the word. It's not in there, the, the, temple, uh, the temple worship. 
And as you think through the Old Testament, given the tabernacle and the temple and these places for worship where God's people would come and they, they would worship and they would bring about sacrifice, the high priest, and, and as they, they had this special relationship, but, but to worship God was a privilege for them that they might know his goodness, that they might respond in worship, that they received uh, the opportunity and the, the structures uh, that they might be worshipers. And then it says the promises. And once again, not so distinct, but as you think through, uh, there's many promises in the Old Testament, in the Bible, but you think about some of the greatest ones, the promises of things to come. What, what in the Old Testament were they looking forward to God bringing about his promises? What was the specific thing? It was the Savior, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, right? So in the, in the Old Testament, there were all these promises that God said, I'm going to send you a Savior. I'm going to send you Messiah. I'm going to send you the one uh, to be the Savior of the world, and, and, and who received that? Who received that? The Israelites did, right? The Jews, God's people. The promises. And then in verse 5, it says, To them belong the patriarchs. And as they thought of the patriarchs, the, the ones that connected them back, they would have immediately said, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then thinking through the, the lineage beyond that, all these uh, connecting them and seeing their goodness, the goodness of God connecting them back to this special one, Abraham, who was called to help them and to really be the father of this new special nation, God's people. And all this belongs to them. All this belongs to them. And so why is this a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because being a rejecter, being a rejecter after having all these things, having all this, this really light and connection and explanation of the plan of God to say, no, I don't want it. No, I don't want it. This is uh, the problem, and this is, uh, I believe, that really connects with Paul's um, broken heart that we looked at verses one through three why is it such a big deal because it wasn't because of ignorance right it wasn't because they were unfamiliar with the plan of God no they'd seen the plan of God they grew up in the plan of God they were connected to the plan of God they knew his blessings and yet uh, they had said no thank you I will reject. And then lastly, in the greatest of ways, it says uh, in verse 5, according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all. Bless forever. Amen. There's this crescendo, this biggest piece of the puzzle is what was the thing that they were blessed with most is that Christ in lineage came from them. And that he was the one, the, the really the fulfillment of these messianic prophecies, prophecies the, the ones that God had, had said, I, I promise that I will, I, I will take care of you. I will bring you a savior. 
And it says, uh, if you look closely at um, what it says of Christ, in verse 5 it says, to whom belong the patriarchs from, from their race, their race, and those are the, if you look at the lineages uh, in the line of Christ, you, you realize it points back to them. According to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all. Uh, that verse, I just want to point these out when we come across them, that shows Jesus to be God in the flesh. Jesus to be God in the flesh. He is not a God. Uh, big G, big G, okay? Uh, think that through. Uh, Jesus was God come in the flesh. Blessed forever, amen. And there's this idea of rejoicing and the ending of it, amen, is why is because Jesus was the reason. Jesus was the, the point of all this. All, all these things that God had done in the nation of Israel was to bring them to Christ and that he would be forever be the one being blessed. Amen. I want to prepare you for something uh, in the weeks ahead. Uh, this rejection of, uh, of the gospel of Jesus uh, as we see in the Israelites and the broken heart of Paul. Um, when you think of that, you, when you think of people that you know right now, you might get all hung up on, you know, I don't know what God's doing. I don't know how this all comes together. You know, I, I don't understand salvation and how one comes to faith. I want to show you something. As we look at uh, really the conclusion of chapter 9, verse 33. Skip to the end of the chapter here. And we're going to come back to this. We're going to come back to this in the next three weeks over and over again. Um, quote from the Old Testament, but I, I just want to get that last line. It, verse 33 says this, As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And then it says this, and this is how it ends the chapter, because I want you to get it. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. What is it, what is it to be right with God? What if you don't understand everything? What if you can't comprehend the work of God in the life of a sinner and you know, before the foundation of the world and how, you know, we're going to get into the potter and the clay and like, what if you can't comprehend that? You say, I don't know. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I want to tell you this. Believe in him. Believe in him. Because the simplicity of the gospel says this, that if you trust, if you believe in Jesus, you will not be put to shame. You will have faith. You will be justified before him. We'll end up there uh, for these next few weeks because I think it's important to remember uh, the conclusion. The conclusion is that we would believe in Jesus, that we would believe in him. I want to give you three things as we close this morning and just helpful things as we uh, went through this passage. The first one uh, is our heart for the gospel for others. Heart for the gospel for others. I think uh, being good Americans um, and like the self-sufficiency and everything, we, we forget the gospel, how it meant to us. I, I want to tell you, none of you came to faith because you were smart enough. 
None of you. I'm not saying you're stupid, okay? I'm not saying that. It might be true. I'm just not saying it, okay? But uh, I, I want to tell you that you weren't smart enough to get the gospel. When you look at these chapters, it's a work of God in you, and it's a work of his grace, okay? And so we start there, as Paul did. How did Paul come to faith? Do you remember? God stopped him in his tracks, right? Blinded him and said, hey, Paul, you know, why are you persecuting me? Let's figure this out, you know. And, and Paul, you know, Paul would have never came to faith unless God did that. I want to tell you, that's you too. That's you too. We wouldn't have come to faith. We weren't smart enough. We weren't seeking after him. That's what it says in Romans. No one seeks for God. Um, as, as we look at this, a heart for the gospel for others, it starts with understanding that we wouldn't have come to faith apart from God's work. There's grace in our lives. And then, as we look at lost souls around us, others, that we would look at them and say, I want for them what God has given me. That's how you develop a heart for others. It's easy to say, ah, just they're stupid, that's why. You know, ah, they're just rejectors of the gospel. I hope they get what they deserve. I want to tell you, don't hope they get what they deserve unless you want what you deserve. I don't want what I deserve. I love the grace of the gospel for me. Heart for the gospel in others. A reminder, second thing, is the gospel is everything and worth all things. It's everything. It's everything. I, I struggle because I think there's many things in this life that, that, I, that I want that don't have, really have anything to do. There's just temporary things, right? You think about, I think especially it comes up in the things we spend our money on uh, as adults, but also the things that we want for our kids. I think of the sacrifices that are made. I I saw an article about a woman who, a single mom, who her her kid loved basketball, and she, she saved her money. She didn't have much money, and she was working multiple jobs, but she just wanted to get him to go to this special basketball game so he could see his favorite player, and things didn't work out, but it just came together, and it was this amazing thing. A mother's love for her child that he loved basketball, and so she loved basketball, and she sacrificed so well, and I want to say this. That's great. It's a great story. But the gospel is everything and worth all things, right? And I want to tell you that your kids and your grandkids will know what you love. They will know what you love. And I want to, I want to hope that they would know uh, that they, you love the gospel and that you're excited for them to know Jesus. And then lastly, I'd just say this, and um, the point of this passage is not so victorious. Not so victorious. It's the rejection of the gospel after riches. After riches. We've looked at this passage before, but in uh, Romans 2, it says the kindness of the Lord leads to repentance, right? And I want to tell you, if you understand the goodness of God for you and you reject it, it's a greater rejection than it is if you didn't know. I, I want to tell you the, the, the heartache of this passage is that the, 
It was the rejection of the gospel after receiving the riches. After. And I want to tell you, if you've trusted in Christ, rejoice in him. If you haven't trusted in Christ, then today you've understood how much God loves you. Accept him. Believe in him. For the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. God, I I ask that you would help us to develop a heart that your servant Paul had, uh, that he loved uh, his people so much that he wanted them to have Jesus, the, the forgiveness, the justification that came from him and him alone. God, thank you for this morning, your blessings on this church. Help us to faithfully walk with you in this day. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.